0: I'm Matt Blois, I'm a producer for Big Biology, and we're taking a break from our regular format to answer some of your questions this week. So for the last two weeks, we've been collecting questions via email and Patreon and social media, and a few days ago I gave Art and Marty a call uh, to see if they can give us some answers. Hey guys. Hey Matt. Hey Matt, how's it going? So I have a list of questions for you. Some of them are questions just about the podcast, Uh, some of them are more hardcore evolutionary biology, and then there's a bunch that are just weird things that people have noticed in nature. Uh, So you guys ready to start? Sure, let's do it.
1: Yeah, I'm totally into weird things in nature. Great. Well, why don't you guys lead us in? I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology.
0: So the first question comes from Nat in Baltimore. He's a Patreon supporter, and he sent us this question via email. Hey guys, longtime listener, first-time caller. It appears that in animals, some behaviors are inherited. I'm thinking of a bird species that builds a particular form of nest with specific materials, or a monarch butterfly that migrates and fall to a location that the individual has never been. Uh, And the question is, are these intrinsic behaviors subject to natural selection in the same way that physical traits are? And then there's the follow-up question to that is, can the genes that determine inherited behaviors be identified, isolated, or even modified?
1: Yeah, great question. Marty, do you want to take a shot at that?
2: Um, sure. I to, I think we have to start. Nat, that's, that is a great question. But um, if you heard one of our earlier episodes about genes not doing crap, we have a, a sort of subtle, nuanced way of, of how we want to tackle that piece. But right. um, just in terms of the intrinsic behavior subject to natural selection, I'll, I'll start with that part, Art. Um, if if that's okay. Yeah. Uh yeah, sure. I mean, there there's nothing special about behavior as long as it has those hallmarks of uh, you know, t- traits that matter in uh in an evolutionary context that some portion of the variation is heritable. And critically in this context, I think the the biggest thing is that there is some variation. Um when you're talking about in nest building behavior or or sort of the nests that come out of it or monarch butterfly migration directions or patterns or, or where they go. Um, if there's no variation, then there's, there's no way for selection to distinguish things. So in extreme cases, you know, you, you can't exactly get evolution. Uh, you, one way to think about this is, is selection on limb, limb number in humans, right? We all have the same number. There's no variation. There's no real way to differentiate ourselves that way. So it's not to say that our limbs don't evolve, but that portion, that part of limb, uh, ness in humans wouldn't really vary. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, Marty. And I would add, you know, that I think one special thing about behavior is that, um, you know, it can be such a complicated process, right? I mean, there's this sort of elaborate n- neural system, sometimes there's brains controlling that, that neural system. And I think it can be hard for people to see connections between the outputs of those brains and individual genes or individual alleles that, that the genome might might contain. And so, you know, in a sense, behavior is like these traits that you and I often talk about, these kind of super complicated emergent traits in which there's no linear mapping of, of traits onto genes,
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Nat, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but maybe some of the the behaviors you're referring to are are the instincts, and those are a little bit different. I think they're sometimes conceived to be simpler or, to use art's words, more more linear. Um, You know, a while ago, there was a very famous person named Lorenz who talked about fixed action patterns, and, you know, sort of particular stimuli will release a behavior, and the organisms will go right through the same old, same old, really no matter the context. And uh, the, the examples that were used is you know egg rolling behavior. If you take out an egg of, a, of the nest of a bird and you put it next to the nest, the same sort of behavioral strategy of putting it under the bill and rolling back into the nest will happen almost no matter what. But again, if that's the thing, if, if that trait is invariant across populations, it's not something that natural selection will necessarily see, there's no way to distinguish. But if you get into the more subtle versions of how adept they can do it, whether they can do it better in this environment versus the other, you know, you can come up with all sorts of nuances where there is the potential for variation to exist, and then you can end up with evolution for those traits just as well as you could for bill length or limb length or anything else that we usually think about. Yeah. So I,
0: I had two, I thought of two kind of follow-up questions to that while you guys were talking uh, that, that seemed sort of related Uh, And one of them was, I think Art was talking about kind of the connection between the physical, something physical happening in an organism and the behavior. Because I mean, so these behaviors don't just come out of nowhere. Is it right to think about behaviors as connected to kind of the way the the brain is formed or, or the way like some sort of physical trait in the organism? Or is it? is it totally divorced from, well, I mean, it probably depends on the behavior, but is it totally divorced from sort of the physical traits of an organism?
1: I mean, I, I think it's a, a great question and, you know, not being a neurophysiologist myself, I'm just going to go out on that limb anyway <laughs> and, and say, you know, um, I mean, I think all the behavior originates in the end from electrical and chemical events happening in the nervous system and in the body and how those are sort of wired up together in, into the complicated neural nets that are, that are generating those behaviors. And so, yeah, you know, at that level, for sure, it all has a physical basis in the end. But I think again, like the, you know, the interesting thing is, uh, how do you get, uh, really complicated? How do you understand how those mechanisms influence really complicated systems like, like neural systems? Mm -hmm. Do you, do you agree with that, Marty?
2: Yeah, I think that that's true. It's one of those uh, sort of perspective that's so broad, it's not always so clear how you crack into the system, right? I mean there's there's a big advantage in cases where we can identify that region of the genome that's responsible for the variation that we care about because we can manipulate those systems and we really can get to a different type of understanding for those sorts of traits than we can for others. It doesn't mean that more complex things aren't interesting it doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to try, but there are advantages and actually um art you know a while ago um, and maybe still in the future we, we'd had some We'd uh, hope to talk to to Hopi Hoekstra about mm-hmm. work that she's done about a particular behavior, um, the building of of burrows in a in a mouse. Um, and so, you know, in that context, it's one of the really neat examples where not only are behaviors uh, heritable and subject to evolution by natural selection, but she can point to the regions of the genomes and actually say it's that thing that changes and directly influences the architecture of the behavior or the, the, or the yeah, resultant totally. burrow. And I mean, that that's just spooky almost on some level.
1: It, it is spooky. And it, it kind of, you know, it more or less contradicts what I just said about um, a nonlinear mapping between, between alleles and behaviors, because here they've identified just a few gene loci. I think it's like two or three loci mm-hmm. in the genome that have a major effect on the way these mice build their burrows. And you know, how, how can something as complicated and that requires as many decisions as it must take to build a burrow, how can that come down to a few alleles influencing that? that that's amazing to me.
0: Yeah, this, that's actually a great segue into another conversation that I had about this, this question. So just because uh, Nat and his question, he specifically brought up the genetics of monarch butterfly migration. Uh, and so I started looking around for a little bit of research about that. And it turns out there's some really cool research about how the genes from that species play into migration. Uh, and so I ended up calling a scientist from the University of Chicago named Marcus Kronforst.
1: Hey, I know Marcus from UT Austin. <laughs> oh, <you>? Hi, Marcus. <laughs> yeah, he's
0: he, we had, yeah. It's such a small had, world. We had a great conversation. But uh, so in 2014, he published this paper in Nature. Looking at the genetics of butterfly migration or specifically of the monarch butterfly migration, which if you if listeners don't know the monarch butterflies every year, they migrate from North America and southern Canada down to Mexico or some of them down to California. But they they go south every year. It's this huge thousands of miles that they migrate. Um, But there's also uh, populations of monarchs that aren't migratory. Uh, They've dispersed to places like Central America and uh, islands in the Pacific and they just they don't need to migrate. So they just live on Hawaii and they're happy and so they don't move. Um, but that sets up this really cool natural experiment where Marcus was able to look at the genomes from the non-migratory populations and the genomes from the migratory populations and he's able to compare those. So we, we already know, we already know basically the, how the monarchs are able to navigate. They have this sun compass, which is able to help them orient themselves. And there's some uh, molecular mechanisms that give them sort of a circadian clock that helps them navigate too. So that sort of gives us the how, but then what Marcus looked at is really the, the why.
3: There's sort of like another layer to this, which is just sort of like the, the, Outside of just this navigation sort of this this ability to sort of keep on track just this propensity to migrate like what makes an insect just want to migrate at all
0: right well, like how do you, um, how and, do they even know how to start or or why exactly they, how yeah. do they even
3: start yes, and so that's stuff that we've been working on um and that's what that that paper sort of originated from that was our first take at it
0: basically what he told me is that there's There's about 500 genes that are different, that consistently different between these migratory and non-migratory populations, which he says those probably have something to do with migration. We don't know exactly what. But then there was one space on the genome, like this really small space, and he really even narrowed it down to basically just one gene that was way different.
3: So that indicates to us that... We don't know how it plays into migration, but it's a pretty good signature that there's something about this that when you're migratory, you need one version of this in your genome, and when you're non migratory, you need a different version of this in the genome.
2: I see your face, Marty. (laughs) I don't want to pick on this too much because I haven't read the paper, but um, there's a lot of research like this, and it's the same story. I mean, just because you have an association between genetic variation and large scale phenotypic variation, unless the study is so well-designed, I mean, insanely well-designed, and these are very difficult sorts of things to do, to point at causality, I mean, probably in the context of this study design, you can't know that because there was no manipulation. But even in terms of the function to phenotype type, things are a little bit difficult. Well, that's, uh, yeah, Matt, do you know what the gene is? That'll help a whole lot.
0: Yeah, it's so this gene was related to collagen, and a lot of the, that, that particular gene was related to collagen. And so basically his idea was it's related to, the, he connected that to the morphology part because it's related to muscle function and how how the insect is actually able to fly.
2: Yeah, and it, it makes for a compelling... It, it probably is involved. I'm not, I'm not arguing that part, but as causal of the difference between the two, it's not knowable, right, in the context right. of how the study was designed. But whether it's the only thing that's important, the only way one really knows that is to work on a whole bunch of different monarch and, and ideally even other butterflies or things that are comparable in, in many different ways. If you want to yeah. have some generality, it, it's harder to get to, to something like that. Yeah.
0: And so the last thing I'll say about this is just when I, when I talked to Marcus on the phone, Marty, that was, I actually, the that's exactly what I brought up was that, you know, Hey, we've, we've talked to a lot of people who tell us that genes don't do crap. Uh, and, you know, it's, we tend to be pretty suspicious of stories where it's there's this one gene that causes this one effect. And he actually totally agreed with what Marty was saying. He's saying, yeah, that's uh, – it's a lot more complicated than that.
3: If you just look at North America, during the summer, monarch butterflies are not migrating. They're just living like normal butterflies. They come out of the chrysalis. They fly around. They don't live particularly long. Um, and then they die. And so there's a number of these short-lived generations every summer. Right. And then each – late summer, early fall gives rise to, from the same exact genome, gives rise to this generation of monarchs that are going to live for nine months. They're morphologically different. They have this behavioral, um, this striking behavioral difference where they fly to their overwintering grounds. So all that is happening in one population and it's all acting from the same genome. So that's all just how the environment then feeds in and makes the same genome produce totally
1: different outcomes. So, so that's an example of extreme plasticity based on, you know, day, day length and temperature, right? So the same genome can produce these just dramatically different phenotypes, which I, I think is amazing.
0: So the next question we have is from Kelsey in Camarillo, California and this is what she had to ask about her dog. Hi, my name is Kelsey, and I have a question for you guys. So I was
2: looking at my dog earlier today, and I noticed that she looks more like a coyote than a wolf. But I always thought that all dogs were descended from wolves. That got me thinking of whether some dogs are descended from coyotes, and some dogs are descended from wolves. Or like, what exactly is the evolutionary tree of the dog species and how are they related to wolves or coyotes? I just want to know whether my dog is a coyote or not. Okay. Thank you.
1: Uh, I mean, the short answer is yes, they are descended from wolves. And, and that's that's been supported by a number of studies over the last 20 years that have looked at the phylogenetic trees of of dogs and wolves and coyotes. And there's very clearly a deep split between wolves and coyotes. And the dogs are almost always falling out from within the wolf clade. So, but that hides a whole lot of, that kind of simple answer hides a lot of complication, right? So uh, one one complication is that among canids generally in North America, um, there is actually a lot of hybridization. So there's still ongoing hybridization between wolves and coyotes. And it wouldn't be that surprising to me if there were, you know, coy- fragments of coyote genome or coyote mitochondria, in, in some dog lineages. Um, and then the, the sort of other complications are, you know, how and when did dog domestication happen from wolves and, and where did it happen and, and how many times? So was it just once or did it happen multiple times from different wolf subpopulations? And Marty, I think you have some thoughts about that.
2: Uh, they're not my thoughts. I've never studied wolves in my life, but um, you know, like any good biologist, any good researcher, we can do our homework. Um, yeah, I think I, I hate to burst bubbles about. No, it's not necessarily a coyote, but you're you're right. Art, it it's not not a coyote. It's just not super likely that it is. Um, as far as when and where for dogs uh, in terms of splitting from wolves, um, it seems like we're getting a better idea of how that happens, but it's still up in the air. Like we have a, a kind of a ballpark of about uh 20 to 40,000 years ago the split happened um, and it's pretty clear that there's sort of one group that became the eastern breeds and another group that became the western breeds uh, somewhere dogs. on the order of 17 and a half yeah the the dogs 17 and a half to 24 and a half thousand years ago um, and you know the the data sets brought to bear on that's it's pretty amazing in one sense like you know 5700 different individual extant dogs or wolves or coyotes to to run that to run that analysis is pretty impressive. But when you try to do the older dog side of things, you know, we only have a handful of Neolithic fossils. One is about 1000 years, another four and a half thousand, another 5000. There's one undisputed uh, example of a dog fossil from 14 and years ago. But until we get a lot more fossils, and we all know how discovery of fossils goes, it's just being in the right place at the right time, um, it's going to take us a long time to shore up that exactly when and exactly where and whether, like you say, more than one domestication event happened. Um, the evidence now would say one, but where and when, we don't know.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's, this is a question that I've actually, or I've wondered about a version of this question a lot, because I have a sheepdog. And it is a dopey animal; it, <laughs> it's, it can barely tell what's going on. And so sometimes I just look at it and go, "How is that possibly descended from some kind of a wolf?" And I think the same yeah. thing when I look at Chihuahuas. So I mean, that would yeah. that would be my follow up question: like, how do you get a sheep dog or a Chihuahua from from? Well, domestication
2: is an amazing thing, right? Um, Darwin wrote a whole bunch uh, about the artificial selection in general. Um, so. Yeah, if you can produce mastiffs and chihuahuas from the same wolf genomic background, that's pretty amazing. And actually, I, we just bring that up so much, but the whole genes don't do crap perspective, uh, the the amount of latent variation that exists in the wolf genome to be able to produce such phenotypic diversity, it's, it's amazing. Um, but the whole process of domestication is pretty cool in the sense that many times when that clock's run forward you end up with similar endpoints, right? So in other words, when you take something that's like a wolf and you turn it into something that's amenable to us for pets or for food or for whatever it might be, When it's a vertebrate, the outcomes often are fairly similar. Um, You know, it's probably a good topic for a future episode because there's so much to talk about. But, um, you know, the ears change, they become a little bit more droopy. The the structure of the face changes, the physiology, especially in in terms of responding to stressors. There's over and over this sort of recurrent evolution of this almost human amenable phenotype that shows up. And it's, it's pretty amazing that that happens really without any direct intention for it to be that way it's just sort of what the genome quote-unquote decides to become over the course of years of selection right
1: yeah marty we got to get somebody on to talk about this uh the russian fox farm yeah, the silver, experiment. Yeah, the silver fox so stars. yeah that's amazing um, you know listeners may know about this but there's been this long-term uh experimental evolution uh, project that's been focused on silver foxes in in russia and they've been selecting on them for tameness and and just that that simple selection on tameness has has driven the evolution of a lot of dog-like traits in these foxes. So like what Marty was saying, droopy tails, you know, droopy uh, ears. They, they bark. So you know what what I think that says is that there's a lot of pleiotropic connections within in genomes and within neural systems, and and that you know you pull on one of those strings like domestication. Or tameness and you get these correlated changes in all of these other traits, and that that's, I mean, it's sort of remarkable to me that that you get so many parallel changes between what's happening in silver foxes and and what happened in dogs.
2: Right. Yeah. So many examples in the past of convergent evolution, but you we don't usually think about convergent evolution happening uh, sort of that way, that rapidly, and through the same type of pathways. And yeah, that it what you invoked yeah. there about pleiotropy yep. is a, it's a sensible way to, to pursue it. To right. think about yeah. how this is happening.
0: Well, and this is, this is similar to what we talked about with Mihailo uh mm-hmm. at the end of last year.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This, this one last one last little comment is it, I think it also illustrates the, the vast power of artificial selection, right? I mean, you can get this just incredible diversification of dog breeds just in the last few hundred years. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, you know, consistent long-term selection generation after generation by people on traits that they care about. And you get, chihuahuas and great danes
2: yeah well i mean evolution happens a lot faster than i think we used to give it credit because it's not just chihuahuas and great danes you get all sorts of diversity in chickens pigeons cattle sheep goats Uh and i mean we don't even need to start talking about plants the difference between you know ancestral corn versus the corn that we breed now it's completely different stuff well speaking of intelligent
0: beings such as dogs such as my Wait, didn't you just talk
2: about the lack of intelligence in your goofy dog (laughs) (laughs) in particular?
0: Uh, We had this question from a listener in Barcelona.
1: Hello, this is Lara from Barcelona, and I want to ask, if intelligent and conscious life exist
0: in other planets, should we expect intelligence and consciousness to be similar to ours, or could it be radically different? Should we expect any biological constraints on these characteristics?
2: Oh, man. Don't you love these super simple questions? So I, <laughs> I, I, I love these. Uh, this is fantastic. And I think off the bat, we should say that we're not gonna do justice to this in a few minutes, but we totally are with you, Lara. That um, this is a topic that deserves a lot of attention, and by this, I guess I mean both the intelligent side of things and especially the the consciousness form. So, Art, why don't we try to do a do it in a nutshell, um, and then save you know say say most of it for a couple of hours over the course of the next year.
1: Yeah, sounds great.
2: Um, so I guess let me, let's me let first do a plug like we like to do and suggest that if you haven't heard it yet, the episode with Sarah Walker is a, is a good place to start with this in my mind, because until we settle on what life means, I think it's hard to talk about these things. Um, so Sarah had a lot to say about that. We never really got to the intelligence part. Um, so a little bit about my thoughts on that now. Um, you know, there, there's so much contingency in the history of the evolution of life on Earth that I think people have, and one could make arguments that it's unlikely that everywhere intelligence would happen. If we played the clock forward again, we get a completely different outcome in terms of the species that exist, and uh, a lot of them wouldn't wouldn't have intelligence. Just how they how they evolved may preclude it in some way. Um, you know, interestingly, I talk about this in classes that I teach. There's not a lot of evidence in humans that intelligence is adaptive in the sense that populations differ, that we have really good systematic examples of how populations differ one from the other in terms of their intelligence and what it's meant to their fitness. You could but, but buddy, be... Let, let
1: me interrupt here. I mean, you know, it seems like you could argue that, for example, that the brain, our large brains are so energetically expensive that there's no way something like that would have evolved without some offsetting benefit. Yeah.
2: Right? I'm not saying that it's not benefit uh, beneficial, but actual evidence that you know the difference between this population going on to, to you know seed an entire continent versus another one really clear evidence because it's hard to come by really clear evidence isn't so much there and even in other species at the level of individuals within a population we don't have great evidence that intelligence in the in the sense that we think about it for for humans we tend to emphasize it for humans right. is adaptive partly because we don't have equivalent intelligence to compare in the first place
1: or, or it's hard just to assign a value to that intelligence for any, yeah, you know, any population yeah. of any, any species either, right? So right, what you know, right. what is a relatively intelligent dolphin compared to a not-intelligent dolphin? Yeah, it's
2: not—I yeah. mean, people have had difficulties forever doing that, and this is something we'll, we'll touch on in one of our soon-to-come episodes with Janet Mann on cetacean intelligence. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my point is that the intuition that uh, intelligence is has, has a special human adaptation, at some level, that is true— But the details by which that came to be that'll help us make some predictions about the the commonness of intelligence of the universe it's not so straightforward i i I think is, is all i wanted to say it's not that it isn't an adaptation um but the details by which it worked as an adaptation we don't have and if we don't have that it's hard to extrapolate to other places
0: yeah so i have an important question here uh who's more intelligent art or marty
2: Oh, that's, that's an easy
1: one. I, I think Matt wins. <laughs>
0: what, what was your dog again? The goofy dog, uh, <laughs> Lucy, <his name?
1: laughs> Lucy. Lucy, the most intelligent
0: creature on the planet. There we go. Yeah. there we go. So,
1: so, but, but, I want to weigh in here because I feel like Marty, you took a very sort of, you know, applying mechanistic evolutionary theory to this idea, but I think you could also just sort of step back and and take a more like statistical view of all of this, and and it kind of comes down to the same thought process of like, is there life elsewhere in the universe? And that's a statistical argument, right? It's like there's so many trillions of stars out there and some fraction of them have habitable planets and some fraction of those have life on them and, you know, probably have life on them. And you go through that process and I guess, and maybe this is just my own naive optimism, but I feel like if, if there are other planets out there with life on them and, and I guess, you know, at some level, how could there not be, given how many planets are out there, that some of them must harbor uh, what we would potentially call intelligent life? I don't know. It would be amazing to me if, if those didn't exist. But the the thing is, my amazement will never be satisfied or refuted because we'll never know, right? The universe (laughs) is just just too vast and the distances to all of these planets are are too great for information ever to travel between them. And so at some level, I think this is going to remain a statistical argument probably till the end of our time.
2: Well, okay, so you are much more of an optimist I think than I am because I can't attribute a probability to something that's only happened once, right? I mean, we only have the origination of human-like intelligence a single no, time as far as we know of know the universe. Of one time. Right, so it's it's really hard to use that to extrapolate commonness. It's the same thing sure. for the origins of life. I mean, we have no other replicates, we have no other evidence of uh, sort of other, you know, forms of life. Every all life on Earth comes from a single common ancestor. All forms of intelligence come from a single common ancestor. So we have a single, a single experiment. Um, in terms mm. of the, are we ever going to find it if it exists? Let's just say that in principle, or let's just say it does exist. The universe is about fourteen billion years old, right? And the and Earth is four point six and evolution or intelligence of any form didn't come around until very recently intelligence of our form probably just a few hundred thousand years so not only is it relatively recent and if that's a typical type of thing that it takes that long trillions of planets in, in the uh, that could possibly harbor life and an infinite amount of space to look for the window potentially is quite small in which that can happen and then let me be a completely negative right I mean, we're in a situation now where our intelligence has put us in a good place in the sense that there's more people alive than ever before in the past, but we're also not great in looking into the future. And so our discounting of what things might look like for the other future intelligent entities puts everybody in the future at risk of not being around anymore. If the sort of success of intelligence breeds that same phenomenon everywhere, there could be a gigantic bottleneck that most civilizations face- Mm -hmm. Such that when they become so intelligent, unless they end up doing things that we've never been able to do, pay as much attention to the future as the present, that we end up winnowing down even more the chance of intelligence. no, I I agree with that.
1: that. Although I want to make a distinction here between the evolution of intelligence and the origin of civilizations, right? So, you know, you might well say that dolphins are intelligent, but they obviously don't have technological civilizations like we do. Mm-hmm. Right? So you could have had the repeated evolution many times of intelligence, but not the accompanying technological innovation.
2: Yeah. The, that, that, hum- that would leave traces about, that we could find. We're talking find, about human right? types of intelligence, though, right? Or at least the kind that could build civilizations as we understand uh, them. Okay, sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: This is the butterfly show. You're listening to Big Butterfly. <laughs> uh, so we, we had butterfly. a we had a second butterfly migration question, and this was uh, about more of a specific uh, phenomenon that was happening in California this year. I don't know if you guys heard about it. Uh, there's a big mm. migration of the painted lady butterfly. Uh, so here's the question from Jessica, and she's from Merced, California.
2: Hi, Big Biology. We have a question about butterfly migration in California. There was this recent painted Uh, lady butterfly migration and we were wondering whether that migration was accomplished by a single individual moving from south to north or if it was successive generations um, where they breed and then the um, young individuals
0: then take the next jump in the uh, migration pathway.
3: Thanks.
1: Yeah great great question and I'll just say that um you know, pa- painted ladies are often confused with monarchs, and they look sort of superficially similar, but they're they're not. They're they're different, very different butterflies. Um, pa- painted ladies are super interesting because they're they're a really widespread species. They occur basically everywhere in the world, uh, except for Antarctica, like not surprisingly, and <laughs> and South America, which is maybe somewhat more surprising. Um, and there are populations, just just like we talked about with Marcus Kronforce's work, there are populations that are migratory and um, populations that are not. And at least the, as I understand it, the giant California migration this year was was stimulated by um, really extensive rains over the last year in Southern California and Northern Mexico that, that just produced a bumper crop of food for the larvae of these things, the caterpillars. And they're, they're, They're quite generalist caterpillars, so they they tend to really love thistles, but they'll eat many different things. And so when there's a lot of rain and a lot of plant production, it can be banner years for these things.
0: So I ended up calling a biologist who studies these painted lady butterflies at UC Davis. Uh, His name's Art Shapiro, and this is how he described the migration.
3: So there are two northward waves, but they are not completely synchronized in time and space. Depending on where they started from and how big a fat store they have, they may go variable distances north. So the ones that started, say, in northwestern Mexico or in Baja California may poop out, say, in the San Joaquin Valley. While ones that started farther north may make it all the way up to Oregon. They breed wherever they run out of fat. And the offspring that result, the adult butterflies from that breeding event, which will hatch in typically late May to early June, will then themselves move north even further.
0: So he's saying it's multiple generations and it's a little bit asynchronous. important question have either of you been bitten by what's the most venomous thing that either of you have been bitten or stung by just out of curiosity
2: Mm,
1: Uh, wasps
2: yeah many different Uh, wasps yellow jackets yeah yeah, all sorts of things
1: i've been bitten by snakes but not venomous snakes uh which is good
2: well how about how about a really cool stupid story those always go well so you know i used to work in panama i used to work in panama where the aceton bercelli the army ants are and you know the 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 neotropical army ants are super cool because if you protect yourself, meaning you wear long pants, put duct tape around your legs, you can stand at the front of a swarm and they'll all run up you and some of them will bite, but they never really, it's never really all that big of a deal. And so eventually the, the wavefront passes and they all climb down your legs and go away. And it's a cool experience because all the ant birds are going nuts and the insects are running away and you're right there in the middle of the chaos. So having done that several times as a, a graduate student, uh, like to 2010, I'm in the field in Kenya with a couple of my graduate students walking around in a park that I'm not remembering. And so we came up on the front of the old world army ants. And I don't remember the the genus. Um, It doesn't really matter all that much. But let's just say they are not as friendly to interlopers as um, the Neotropics. You made arnie the mistake of are. just standing there. I in made the, middle the mistake of, of standing there, and oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got out before it was really all that bad. And moron that I am, I'm actually allergic to insect stings, so it really was wasn't say, that bad. But uh, yeah, the, I, I'm not gonna do anything like that
1: again. I, I think this proves your mor- moronitude. Yes, it does. It does. We didn't really need more
0: evidence. We definitely did need evidence there. Uh, so I asked because we got a. Question from Jay, who's in Wisconsin, and his question was just: If somebody gets bit by a venomous creature, how does antivenom work?
1: Yeah, let me take a shot at that, Martin. Yeah, go ahead, Art. Yeah. So, so antivenom generally those are antibodies that are produced to to venom. So, you know, these are a, a fundamental part of the the vertebrate immune system, and they're basically like little kind of sticky notes for the immune system that bind on to. Uh, bad actors inside the body and alert the immune system that those need to be destroyed. And so what what antivenoms are are uh, basically sets of antibodies that are produced by other animals when people inject them with small amounts of venom. So you might um, inject, say, rabbits with small doses of venom, get them to produce antibodies of their own and then you can isolate those antibodies from the rabbit blood and then use them to inject into a, a person who's been bit. And then what those antibodies do is travel throughout the body, bind to the venom uh, proteins. And what I didn't say is that the the sort of worst parts of the venom are usually proteins that interact with uh, our own cell membranes and with ion channels on, on those cell membranes. So if you can... Interfere with the action of those venom proteins, then they can no longer uh, uh, you know, do their bad actions on our cell membranes. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's not much to add Art, that nailed the majority of the pieces. Um, in, in case anybody is worried about this or working in a job or a place where venomous uh, antivenoms are especially necessary, this is not the type of thing like a vaccine where you take once and you're protected forever right the antibodies eventually will degrade if used right. to protect you against one bite and so if you're bitten again you have no protection likely you're going to have to get another antivenom shot to be able to protect yourself and it it likewise it's not going to cure or stop the damage it's going to keep things from getting worse but whatever venom's uh, the venom's have done um, that that's all sort of going to going to be there that initial damage
0: Okay, moving on from things that might kill you, things that you might have to be afraid of in the field to things that might imperil the entire world. Uh, We have this question from James. He's a Patreon supporter at Maidenhead UK. Uh, and, And so he sent us this question on Patreon. And he says, I have a question about the perils of synthetic biology. In your opinion, how close are we to a curious teenager in a garage being able to make a designer virus? Are the issues of existential threat thought about within the biological community? And if so, what is being done to reduce risk for both current and future technologies?
2: That's a big one. Um, how many times have we done it so far? Let's do that on another episode. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to say that now, Art. I, I don't know how you feel, but um, this is a really cool and practically important topic that I think we need to spend a bunch more time on. My short answer would be, it's definitely not as easy as it's often made out by Hollywood to be. Um, I work on viruses as, as part of my lab's research. And, um, you know, A, a lot of viruses are incredibly wimpy. If they sit out on a surface and get exposed to any UV or other environmental uh, perturbations for any period of time, they just sort of become inviolable. Um, remember, most viruses have to replicate by getting inside of some host cell. They're, they're just such simple things that they can't make copies of themselves without help. So it's not as if you can just, you know, breed them and have them lie around on the counter and use them anytime you want. If you do want to generate versions of them to be able to use, you have to have expensive and complicated, you know, culturing equipment and a lot of patience and and often training to be able to keep that stuff going. Um, And in the end, it's probably going to be the case that anything that's ever weaponized, as has always been the case in the past, is something that we change from what's already there. So the chance of inventing from scratch some de novo super bug that's never existed before, probably not. I mean, the smartest people, best funded people in the world aren't able to generate life that doesn't have some sort of ancestor that evolved on the planet, right? They're always playing around, manipulating something that already exists. So we're not going ge- to generate anybody, nobody's going to generate any- anything de novo, at least as far as the technology we have right now. And the difficulties of, of doing it in general, it probably means it's not much that we have to worry about uh, for a while.
0: Moving on to the lightning round portion of, the of this round. episode. So hopefully you guys are prepared. There's a lot on the line here. We got this question from Amber. She's a listener in Huntington Beach, California. And she just asked, what are the weirdest ways that animals of the same species communicate with one another? And so here's how the game's going to work. Uh, you guys have to go back and forth, list a way, a weird way that animals communicate with each other, and the other one has to respond with another form of communication. Whoever fails to come up with a form
2: of communication loses.
1: Cats, cats leaving scents for one another.
2: Uh, subsonic communication by elephants.
1: Uh, insects using vibratory communication within tree limbs.
2: Dancing red cat mannequins in their sexy legs.
1: Moths emitting pheromones to attract mates.
2: Uh, dung middens, piles of poop. That organisms use to communicate.
1: Uh, plants emitting volatile compounds to alert other sections of the same plant or nearby plants that they're being attacked by herbivores.
2: Mm, firefly flashing, to be alliterative.
1: Did Did you already say uh, whales communicating over hundreds of miles underwater?
2: I didn't. I did the elephants. So you get the whales. Fair enough. Um, ultrasonic communication by tarsiers. So the little uh, creepy big-eyed guys aren't eaten. Tick 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 tick.
1: Kaboom! Art loses. <laughs> 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 oh, I like the sound effect. Uh, uh, I'm uh, stumped.
0: That was that was great. That was a, a really good list. Uh, are there any Are there any of those ones? So you guys just listed a whole bunch. Are there any super cool ones that you guys want to circle back to and explain how that works? Um, I mean, they were all. I mean, what, the ones that, that fascinate me are the ones that are that we can't see it all or like yeah, there's right. the... I think
2: I agree. We're going to... So when we talk to to Janet about um, cetacean intelligence, we probably will spend some time on the multiple different ways that, that cetaceans communicate. So it'll be the long distance stuff, but it'll also be, you know... Uh, dolphins have names for each other there's some there's some really cool pieces there but it's all that that same type of thing that you're talking about matt either we can't interpret it or it's operating at a different wavelength or you know even a different modality yeah than humans yeah well like the one of the ones that's
0: fascinated to me is the way plants can communicate and i mean it's just it's Mm -hmm. something that you know i think it's uh, sort of on an intuitive level that almost doesn't seem like communication but there's i mean there's something happening there
1: yeah, and you know one one sort of plant thing. So so we were focusing this lightning round on on individuals within a species communicating with one another, but there's really cool stuff about um, other individuals listening in, individuals from other species listening in on those conversations and and exploiting them. And one that I know about and that uh, worked a little bit on in my lab is insects that pay attention to changes in volatile compounds put off by plants when they're attacked by herbivores. And in particular, there are parasitic flies and parasitic wasps that appear to use those changes in the plant bouquets in order to find their, their herbivore victims on, on the plant. So pretty pretty awesome.
2: That's amazingly cool. Yeah, calling yeah. in the troops of another species. Yep. That's really yep. neat. <laughs>
0: So we have a couple more questions that are just about how we make the podcast and kind of about the podcast in general. Uh, so this is this first question is from Esther and she's in Barcelona. Hi, this is Esther from Barcelona. Um, I wanted to ask, how did you all meet?
1: Uh, I don't know what what's the podcast origin story. Um, when were we bit by the spider?
2: I think the, didn't that that happened when you were down here to talk about your science in my uh, my department and uh, out afterwards when I was picking on you for your uh, love of the word acceptation. Um, I moved over, I moved over after being mean. I said something like, Hey, you know, now that I've been an asshole, can we, um, talk about doing a podcast together?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my memory of it is you said, uh, either, either you should do a podcast or we we should, I think I said, well, we should do a podcast. And, (laughs) you know, it sounded like just pure fantasy at that point, but then we were at the bar and, mm-hmm. and a couple of beers later, it started to sound like a better idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly when we said, Let, let's do this. But um, yeah, and then I, I came back to Montana, and it just so happened that Matt was uh, doing a, a journalism project in my lab at that time. And so I started talking to him about it, and and he seemed kind of enthusiastic about it. So that that helped get the ball rolling, for sure.
0: So there's another question about... Uh, the production of the podcast so this is emily from london
1: hi this is emily from london i just wanted to ask how long does it take you to get an episode ready
2: oh matt you should be the one to answer that <laughs> well this
0: is, i actually think it's kind of interesting i think there's a couple of different ways you could answer it because i mean on some sense the answer is two weeks because that's how often we put out a podcast but there's just a lot that goes into it beforehand i mean like you guys have said before, you spend a lot of time thinking about which scientists you want to talk to on the podcast. And you spend a lot of time reading through their papers and getting to know their research really well. Um, and just getting the logistics of setting up that interview with, I mean, sometimes with people who are uh, in other parts of the world. Well, and at one point, Marty was in Australia. And so it could be quite an intercontinental affair, depending on who we're interviewing. Um, Yeah.
2: That's the wonders of the internet now. We can relatively low tech uh, do things from across the world.
1: Yeah. And it feels like we've, we've sort of gradually gotten the wheels greased over the last couple of Mm -hmm. years. Right. So, you know, when we first started doing this, it was agonizing to, (laughs) to do all, all the parts really. It was agonizing to get prepared. It was like, you know, a kind of big event to do the interview. And, you know, those, those are still big events, but, um, we've done it enough now that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of knock you sideways like it did at at the beginning. So it's getting a lot faster, but it's still, you know, every two weeks, I guess feels to me like on the edge of sustainable because there's a lot that has to happen uh, to make, to make that happen.
2: But I think that it's always going to be hard for us to get any faster because, My favorite thing about doing this is the is the energy and time that we put into it. You know, it is reading a whole book or it's reading a big batch of papers and thinking a bunch about that and taking an enormous number of notes. Because a lot of what we talk about is I mean, honestly, or I don't know how you feel, but honestly pretty much at the margins, if not totally off my page. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, we gotta learn a lot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then after after we read it for ourselves, you and I usually have you know, an hour or so offline of discussion about what we like, what we didn't understand, what we want to highlight, those types of things. And so all that happens over the course of many, many hours before we ever even talk to one of the guests. And then depending on the complexity and the jargon and everything, that's where Matt has to take (laughs) over and, and and surf through all of that heavy duty stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So he's he's the magician at sort of smoothing that stuff out. Uh.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, uh, we had another question, The not directly about biology, but I I think it it is appropriate for our podcast. Uh, This is coming from Jana, who's in uh, Missoula, Montana, and she had this question about science communication.
2: You sometimes have science writers and science journalists as guests. What's your personal experience been like when a reporter is interviewing you? Can you provide any tips to scientists on how to give a good interview? Can you provide any tips to journalists on how to conduct a good interview and write a good piece? Have you seen your own work misreported?
3: How did you handle that situation?
2: Well, I'll take that. I'll take the first part about, um, you know, the the experiences. Yeah, I've been interviewed a bunch about various different parts of my research, and most of the time, I'm super impressed by how the journalists do it. I mean, Matt, you you know, you're an example of that. We give you about the hardest things we could possibly come up with that a lot of pro biologists would struggle, and somehow you come through with a with a really good script. So that always impresses me. Um, a bunch. It's not to say that that sometimes people don't miss some pieces, but that that second part of the four-part question, I think, was something to the effect of how did the scientist answer better? And I think that sometimes when it doesn't it doesn't hit or whatever you think as a scientist you've talked to with a journalist, it doesn't show up in the written form or or however they choose to summarize it. It's often because we don't communicate it really well. Um, it's really hard to be a science communicator and a scientist because they they're not quite the same thing um i'd like to believe that i've learned a little bit about how to do that over the course of of this exercise and and you've been telling art and i that we're much better now than we were Uh, at the beginning so (laughs) that's a good thing um but i think that in terms of advice for other people to doing it what i would suggest is that Anytime you answer a question, the first thing that should be in your brain is not, oh, it's exciting that a journalist wants to talk to me or, oh, I just can't wait to get this out and I want to make sure that I hit it all for my science colleagues. I think the first thing has to be, how do I say it in a way that everybody that cares to listen to it can understand? And yeah, that's going to often mean that you're leaving out what to the pros will be really critical but you know you've, you've already published the paper or done the work and it's sort of shown up in that place where it's been vetted by the pros so it's your sort of chance to reach that broader audience and and oftentimes that broader audience is just going to be another bunch of scientists that don't do exactly what you do and they too are going to struggle if it's a really convoluted complicated jargon rich answer so sim- simple is good i think that's kind of what the, yeah. the journalists yeah. often ask for anyway right, right. yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I agree with that, and I think, I think you know, what I might add is that, um, <clears throat> and maybe Marty's alluding to this, but it's, it's good to sort of step outside whatever your, your sort of restricted study is, is looking at or whatever kind of core group of concepts that your lab is studying and sort of think more broadly about you know, why, why should anybody care about this and, and what, what's the big picture on why, why we did this work. Um, and you know you don't want to overstretch right I think I think that's also a danger is that people sort of grab for too much significance for what they're doing and so you know as a scientist you have to be humble obviously about about what you know and what you can influence and, and what you can say but mm-hmm. but just having that sort of broader perspective is good and then <clears throat> the related thing I found when talking to journalists is that they really like stories of course right so yeah. there's also a lot to say about, the people doing the science and the process by which you got to the answers that you got. Uh, I've I've been to been to Antarctica to study uh, giant sea spiders uh, for for a variety of reasons. And reporters seem to really like just the the idea of adventuring to the ends of the earth and and doing a crazy thing mm. to get at some science that they may or may not care about. But it's you know it's partly about just the, the human effort of going to get these answers.
2: Yeah, right. Can I, can I just add one more thing, Matt? Um, I sort of consciously, I think I told you this, Art, I've sort of consciously um, started to try to be more of an entertainer, too. I, I think I wanted to do that at some point in, in the earlier part of my life. Um, as a carny. And in science, as, as a, a carny, carny, right, it was always there. Um, I, we're We're not told not to be entertainers, and it's starting to change. It's been changing quite a bit, um, recently but but it used to be seen as if efforts to entertain, which often fall flat, and I'm not saying that I'm a good entertainer, <laughs> I'm just saying that I'm trying. Um but but you were not supposed to entertain because if something was entertaining, you know, it just it's must not serious. also be yeah, it's, bad it's, science, it's, right? It, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I finally came around to well damn it if I can make things informative and also people have a good time. I think that's what I want to go for. Yeah. So I think that to the extent that you feel comfortable doing it and you can do it, or you're just willing to try, I think keep it in your head, saying things in an entertaining way, you're probably going to keep people engaged. And that's maybe one of the most important steps to getting them to understand what's going on in the first place, at least to the point. When I've given professional seminars, um, in the last year since we've been doing this podcast, I really do try to make them more entertaining than it used to be. And I do get a lot more questions than I used to get in the Mm -hmm. past. You can see that two ways that I'm being incoherent and people (laughs) need to ask questions or that they're more engaged and more interested. And, you know, there's things that they want to know now that they zoned out and fell asleep before.
0: Yeah. Um, Great. So this is going to be the last question. And this question comes from Nikki and she's in Laguna Beach, California. And she had a question about, Bring back animals from the dead. If you could bring back one extinct species, Jurassic Park style, what would it be? Which maybe maybe may the place to start
1: there is, would you
0: even <laughs> want to bring something back? I mean, that's, that's probably the... <laughs> okay, okay. The start, well,
1: whoa, so, so there's should, that. should we bring something back? Now, there's a topic for an entire big biology yeah, episode, and yeah. I think we should do Rewilding. that. Rewilding. Yeah. Um, But, you know, for me, this is a no-brainer. I would bring back Meganeura, the really giant dragonflies that lived in the Carboniferous (laughs) 300 years ago. And these are things that had wingspans that are on the order of, like, you know, 30 inches. This is just because it's cool? uh, No, because I think you could actually answer a lot of really interesting questions about Hmm. um, the evolution of body size, which has been one of my obsessions over the last Fifteen years, so these mm. these would be by far the biggest insects that you know any biologist would ever get their hands on, and you can answer a lot of really basic questions about, you know, what does it take morphologically and neurally and physiologically to evolve, you know, a giant giant body size as as an insect, and and are there constraints on, just physical constraints on the evolution of such large sizes um, based on conditions in the world today.
2: Well, that's so good. And I feel bad about my choices because I don't have really good science reasons for it. Like <laughs> I I like, I like, I want to see Styracosaurus because it was my favorite dinosaur when I was little. And I mean, who doesn't want to see the moa, the big terror birds or oh, yeah. Glyptodon? You guys know what a Glyptodon is, right?
1: Those have the big bony tails. Is that right?
2: No, it's Ankylosaurus. The, the oh. Glyptodon is an extinct mammal. So oh, it's right, It's a right. giant, it's that giant armadillo. Oh right? oh, right. That monstrous sort of thing that, oh, gosh what's a good frame of reference for its size it's like a a small vw beetle right
0: (laughs) but an armadillo
2: absolutely amazing thing it's also one of the the big the discoveries one of them that made darwin a famous naturalist which we don't need to go into now but it sort of has has a charm for me in a couple of different ways yeah um yeah but but for no great reasons just Just because they're cool (laughs) well
0: what about be it and and i mean i know you guys said that this is kind of the the question for another episode but uh, just cause we're, we're on the topic right now. I mean, like what are some of the reasons that people, cause I know this is, this is an idea that people are really thinking about and really thinking about whether this is something we should yeah. or shouldn't do. And so I guess, could you briefly talk about like, what are some of the reasons that people want to do this? And what are some of the reasons that people really don't want to do this?
1: Well, well, so you would go ahead, Art. I, I guess I would just say that the reasons to do it are, you know, scientific curiosity and so we can learn about those organisms a and 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 b would be you know some of these organisms that people are talking about bringing back are things that humans probably drove extinct in the first place right so like woolly mammoths um i think you know from a conservation point of view you possibly could make the argument that because we drove them extinct then we also have a responsibility to bring them back if we can but there's a lot of equally valid reasons not to do that. And I don't know, do you want to talk about those, Marty?
2: <laughs> uh, you're assuming that my reasons are the same reasons you're talking about. <laughs> well, uh, they may not be. I mean, the reasons the reasons that people invoke, and, and I agree, there's probably others, but the, the two big ones are, when things went extinct, take the mammoth. the The world is not that place anymore. So you bring back mammoths, and there's no place for them to be that's like well almost no place for them to be where they used to be at least in the places where we extirpated then there's not a whole lot of people living there now now the case of mammoths it's in some sense a cool example because an argument is being made actively right now that we bring them back and we put them up in the tundra and allow them to re-sculpt the habitat so the vegetation changes and we slow global warming right okay i mean you know that sounds noble but I think we all appreciate the sort of generation time of a mammoth and the, the infeasibility of generating sufficient mammoths to be able to solve the problem that way. There's so many other ways that we could do it that I think it's what you said, Art. It's this kind of mixed obligation of we made it extinct and it's a scientific curiosity. Can we do it? that's how science works. Let's, let's do it if we can. Um, that, that really underlies it. And then there's a secondary ecological sort of thing. So the community is gone. We can't really do it anymore. Um, and then the other, the other side that I think it isn't so much a reason against doing it per se, but as far as it is right now, it's like engineering those monster viruses. It's impossible to sort of bring one of these back, totally reincarnate one of these organisms without any help, right? So if we're going to bring back a mammoth, we're going to use some cell from an extant, from a living elephant to be able to blend in whatever mammoth DNA that we can get to do that. There are no mammoths around anymore for us to be able to harvest eggs and, and do it that way. So anything we bring back is going to be some sort of a hybrid thing, not the thing that went extinct in the first place. and what that means and and you know whether you're actually dealing with the sort of ethical side of it by creating a, a portion of what used to be there before, I don't know.
1: You know here's one thing I've never heard said, but would we also have to bring back the mammoth microbiome? And if you know, we, couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't do that, would it not truly be a mammoth in the way that mammoths lived 20,000 years ago? Completely.
2: Yeah, it works that yeah. way for everything. So, you know, there's plenty of other species that would have gone extinct, some of which, like the microbiome, we won't even know about. So there's probably never going to be the opportunity to totally recreate, to totally rewild
1: uh, yeah. a community yeah. or even a single species. It's a mammoth problem.
2: It's a mammoth problem for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Dad joke.
1: You can cut that out, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Don't cut that out, Matt.
0: (laughs) Thanks to everyone who submitted a question. It's always great to hear from listeners. Next month, we're going back to our regular format, but we'd still love to hear from you. If you have a biology question or a suggestion about how to make the show better, feel free to reach out to us on social media. You can also shoot us an email at info@bigbiology.org. We had a few Patreon supporters submit questions to this show. Shout out to patrons Nat Warning and James Hancock. If you want to support this show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com bigbio. Thank you to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Zapsplat.com.